Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Industry Standard, the podcast that debuted at number three on the iTunes charts and has held steady in the top 400 ever since. (laughs) My name is Barry Katz. This is a very, very special episode of Industry Standard. Uh, We've had a lot of great guests on the show trying to bring you uh, a peek behind the curtain of what happens in Hollywood. And uh, today we're going to break form because it's a dual podcast. We're actually going to uh, put this up. My friend Jay Moore, who I've known a very long time, is going to put this up uh, as a Moore Stories podcast. So it's sort of a... uh, a double entendre sort of uh, podcast being the uh, egomaniac that I am. I decided why not have me interview me? Usually, as you guys may or may not know, we begin the podcast with six degrees of separation. So without any further ado, I first met me. In Longmeadow, Massachusetts, I was born a poor black child named Navin Johnson. And uh, sorry, that was Steve Martin in The Jerk. I apologize. I'm getting my, I'm getting my stars mixed up. When I first met me, it was in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And uh, I always knew there was something out there bigger than myself. I always knew there was a better calling for me than uh, doing the work that people in my neighborhood, people in my town did, digging ditches, working at the post office. I knew from a very young age of watching Jonathan Winters. 
people like uh, the 2,000-year-old man sketches from Mel Brooks and watching all Woody Allen specials and listening to Lenny Bruce. I knew that was my calling. And I also knew me when I was a teen. <laughs> and I studied stand-up comedy religiously. It was important to me. It was the oxygen in my lungs. It was the blood that ran through my veins. I woke up every day wishing and hoping against hope that one day I could be one of those people, try to be a, a fraction of as brilliant as these people that I watched. So there's that great old expression, those who can do, those who can't teach, those who can't teach, manage. <laughs> So I decided to give it a shot in stand-up comedy. I did not go your uh, your regular route. I didn't exactly uh, light the world on fire with my stand-up comedy. So what I did instead is I started doing comedy a roundabout way. I, I started putting on shows in Boston is where I got my feet wet in comedy. I have been on stage. I probably have put in about a 1,000 hours of stand-up comedy on stage, mostly hosting shows for my clients. My client list is uh, pretty extensive. People like Dane Cook, Dave Chappelle, Anthony Clark, Nick DiPaolo, Bobcat Goldthwait, Louis Anderson, Jay Moore, Daryl Hammond. The list goes on and on and on. But uh, without any further ado, usually this segment's about 20 minutes long, but I really am very <laughs> excited to talk to myself. You may know... Me, my guest, if you've ever seen the Dave Chappelle Project, both of you, if you've ever seen the TV show Buddies, mostly that means if you were one of the producers of Buddies, man. The short that Dane Cook did, Spiral, I was the executive producer of that. I was the executive producer of the TV show Action. I was instrumental in delivering Jay Moore to Joel Silver's office. And I'll have a funny anecdote for you here. Jay Moore did not want to do the TV show action. He was doing many movies at the time, a lot of independent movies, and he had moderate success doing those. Movies like Go, movies like Playing by Heart, movies like Pauly. And I'll never forget, I, uh, I finally convinced Jay to meet with Joel Silver, the executive producer of the TV show Action, and Joel Silver in his office, and it's an amazing office. There's pictures of uh, every movie he's ever done, and Joel Silver did something that I thought was really interesting. He actually had all hate mail that he had ever received, received framed on his walls, and uh, one, uh, several of those were actual death threats. And in the movie Commando, I don't know if you listening remember, there was actually an interracial kiss. There was an interracial kiss <laughs> in the movie Commando. There was a kiss between two people. One was white, one was black. I don't know if you guys remember Ray Dawn Chong. She actually kissed, uh, I think it was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, if I'm not mistaken. But it was an interracial kiss. And it was an interracial kiss in that movie. And uh, a Klansman. From the Ku Klux Klan, not the Wu-Tang Clan. That would have been amazing. But I digress. 
an actual Klansman sent Joel Silver this uh, this harsh letter just filled with vitriol and hate and called him a Jew motherfucker and uh, I'm going to come to LA and shoot your liberal ass by, uh, I won't go into specifics with the racial overtones, uh, it's a sensitive world these days with the race talk, but uh, let's just say it was pretty, uh, pretty explicit and brutal the way the Klansman was explaining Ray Don Chong and the interracial kiss. There was an interracial kiss with Ray Don Chong <laughs> and Joel Silver had all his hate mail up on his walls to inspire him and I was watching all those letters on the walls and looking at all the movie posters Jay Moore walked in and explained to Joel Silver I'm doing movies now I don't want to do action Jay turned it down about three or four times the bane of my existence is Jay Moore turning down projects <laughs> that could have made us both millions of dollars <laughs> Hope you guys are enjoying the Jimmy Kimmel show because that was offered to Jay 14 fucking times. And he said, I don't want to do it. And I said, why don't you want to do it, man? You now Jimmy Kimmel's a hundred millionaire and Jay Moore is doing AM radio. But Jay also turned down action and it was quite a great deal of money. And uh, he would have been the star of the show. So finally, a Hail Mary. Everyone in life has those Hail Mary moments where you just throw the ball in the sky as hard as you can and say, fuck it, someone will come down with it or they won't. But I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to throw a, a Hail Mary with Ray Don Chong. So I had Jay meet Joel Silver. I thought if anybody could convince Jay, it would be Joel Silver, a man that made a movie with Ray Don Chong, where they had an interracial kiss in the movie Commando, starring about a 10-year-old Alyssa Milano as well. So Jay Moore said to Joel Silver, look, I just don't want to do television right now. I'm having a very successful run as a movie actor. And Joel Silver said, you know, you have to keep in mind Joel Silver at that time was... Uh, coming off about 11 $100 million movies in a row. There's just so many to mention. It's, uh, the guy was a blockbuster machine, man. And Jay said, well, I just did Suicide Kings. I just did the movie Go. I just did Playing by Heart. And Joel Silver interrupted him and said, who are you, fucking Parker Posey? You want to be Parker Posey or do you want to make millions of dollars being the star of a TV show? Are you fucking Parker Posey? And uh, apparently Jay Moore did not want to be Parker Posey because <laughs> he took the gig that afternoon. I was also executive producer of More Sports, the TV show Hype, The Gray in Between, which I've personally never heard of and I worked on it. <laughs> there was a short called Eight Guys, the Jenna Jameson story. Uh, in case you're wondering, short is showbiz for we're not good enough to get this regular length. National Lampoon. The International Show. I helped Joel Silver put together the movie Xanadu <laughs> with Ray Don Chong. <laughs> Jeff Cesario, you can get a hooker tomorrow night. I was the executive producer of that. <laughs> Gary Goldman I've worked with. Kim's of Comedy, which is not females named Kim, but I believe Asians. The TV show Hurt Bert. I used to manage Bert Kreischer. Uh, I've had a good run. And it's just getting started. I was producer of the movie Employee of the Month. Good luck, Chuck. I worked with Frank Caliendo. I managed him as well. Uh, of course, Jay and I worked very closely together in the movie, La excuse me, the TV show Last Comic Standing. I sat on my reading glasses. I can't even talk right, man. 
Uh, pretty much anything Dane Cook related. I had my fingerprints all over that. And uh, I will say this about myself. It's a very uh, strange way to make a living uh, to be a, a manager because you're, you're betting on others sometimes more than they actually bet on themselves. And you have to have that complete faith in your client. Even when they're down, you can never show fear. You can never show depression. You can never have negativity. You have to let them know they're more special than they could ever imagine. Otherwise, some of these people just wouldn't go on. So that's what I've been doing for the last 40 plus years. And uh, I was born in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, which is an old Indian word that means Jews live here. <laughs> Without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome me, Barry Katz. Barry, welcome to my podcast. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz's semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. You know, before I get started, I want to take a minute to let you know that I receive a lot of correspondence from companies wanting to sponsor the show, and I just... I've just avoided it since we started. You know, I always thought that it was kind of weird, and I thought that maybe people would think a certain way if I I did that. And there was this one guy who kept reaching out to me, kept reaching out to me over and over again, persistent. His name was Michael Purcell. And finally, he traveled to L.A., and he said, you know, i got to meet you. So I met the guy, and... Uh, I sat down and he told me that 10 years ago he created a company called Global Cash Card where he figured out a way to take payroll, make it paperless for companies of any size, and then allow somebody's weekly salary to be instantly like loaded anytime, anywhere onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. 
So I was a little bit intrigued. So I went online and I did some research and I found out that it cost around $3 for every paycheck to be cut by a company. So that means if you're like a, you know, medium, large company, whatever, and you have a thousand checks you're writing every week, uh, do the math. It was like $12,000 a month you could save or 135 k a year on this global cash card. So I called the guy back and I said, well, this is something that everybody can benefit from. So I decided to sponsor him and his company. So do yourself a favor. Go to globalcashcard.com. Schedule a live demo on their system. Speak to Michael Purcell. See how easy it is for your company to start saving big money today. And trust me, you'll be glad you did. My guest today is Barry Katz. Hello, Barry. What's up, Barry? It's good to see you, man. <laughs> it's like I'm looking in a goddamn mirror. <laughs> oh, it's good to see you, man. Thank you so much it's for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm speechless. Well, that would be... Uh, please don't be speechless for the next hour, because uh, otherwise we'll have nothing to put up on the iTunes. <laughs> Barry Katz, at what age did you realize... You had to be in comedy. At what age did you realize, I must be in comedy? I have to be in comedy. I can't be a mailman or a plumber. I can't lay carpet or roofing. I can't surf. What age did you know comedy was your calling? Well, I knew it at a very I'm young sorry, age. we're out of time. <laughs> <laughs> this has been Industry Standard with Barry Katz. <laughs> at what age, Barry? I'm sorry. I just can't. What's going on? You're laughing like you've been smoking African babinja weed, man. I, Which one of these guys uh, can go do something for me? Uh, microwave 33 seconds is down the hall on your left in the little kitchenette area there, buddy. You have a lot of interns. Jesus, man. <laughs> the battle of Appomattox didn't have this many bodies laying around. We do a podcast with Barry Katz. There's 14 young boys following him until like he's Rufus Wainwright. Let me ask you this, Barry. Let's start with the, finish the first question. Let's start with the present moment. If you're doing a podcast, I know Jay Moore does more stories out of his garage on a, like a card table, like an old Mexican playing dominoes. Why do you have 11 people just to put together a podcast? Well, I just feel like I love to have interns around because I feel like I want to try to make a difference for as many people as I can. And I never had this kind of thing where they could learn. You know, when when I went to see Jay Moore at Saturday Night Live, it was amazing because you'd be standing next to Kurt Cobain or or Steven Tyler or Chris Farley and you'd be a part of everything. And and. I felt like I had a, a back seat to something really special and the front seat. And sometimes I want to have the same thing for, for these guys who are just starting. That's pretty amazing. You want to make a difference. You've always wanted to make a difference in people's lives. And uh, you figured for interns, the best way to make a difference in their life is get them up at six in the morning and record a podcast without paying them. What a schnorr. <laughs> and get myself coffee for 33 seconds in the microwave. Doing everything you can to break the Jewish stereotype. I love that about you and I. The two berries. At what age did you know that you had to have some type of career in stand-up comedy? Well, firstly, uh, I just want to say... Thank you, and, Skyler. And, and here's uh, your, your coffee. I, I didn't even know... A white I, what? guy named Skyler, what are the odds? <laughs> I thought his name was Anthony. 
I didn't know I like coffee, but that's good. Um, no, when I was um, four years old, my dad passed away. And uh, it's a long story, which I won't go into the whole thing, but I used to explore in the basement and I pulled out a old rusted file cabinet that I broke open and there were like 50 albums there and they were all albums of black artists like Louis Armstrong and Nat King Cole, the Supremes, Dinah Washington, Shirley Bassey, and there were only three there were only three. Uh, <laughs> Another intern has just entered the pile. <laughs> Hello, my love. How are you? I'm Barry Katz. This is Industry Standard. This is my guest, Barry Katz. Hello. So there are now one, two, three, four, five. There are six interns watching guys plug microphones in and talk. <laughs> anyway, so overhead, zero dollars. <laughs> Well, you've got Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week down cold. He said have 20% of the people doing 80% of the work. Anyway, so I found black all, the, artists. all these black albums, and there were three albums of white artists in that file cabinet. Jonathan Winters, as you alluded to, Comedy and Tragedy. Uh, Smothers Brothers, Crabs Walk Sideways, and Lobsters Walk Straight, and the button-down mind of Bob Newhart. I'm not mistaken. I believe that was the first gold album that Warner Brothers ever had. You are correct, sir. And uh, do you remember who introduced uh, uh, Bob Newhart to his wife? I don't. Buddy Hackett. Oh, to be in Nagasaki where the women chew the baki and the men say, Whoa, wacky, whoa, Bob, I want you to meet this girl. She's all right. <laughs> so yeah. when you were a child, you uh, you were <laughs> listening to Louis Armstrong records and Jonathan Winter records. Now your your dad passed when you were four, so it's hard to imagine a four year old listening to the uh, intricacies of Louis Armstrong's trumpet. <laughs> yeah, well, I found them when I was like about ten or eleven or twelve, and then I just I didn't we didn't have anything to play them on, so I started collecting S and H green stamps, which if you remember, every time you got a dollars worth of stuff in your grocery store they would put a green stamp in and you would paste them into these books and uh you could redeem them for uh cash and prizes and i think the record player was like 33 books of stamps and so i brought them to the redemption center center and i got one of those fold down record players brought it home and started playing Shirley Bassey, Goldfinger, and I just didn't really get into music as much as uh, guys like Jay Moore did. And so I listened to the comedy. Jonathan Winters was a little bit crazy for me. He was a little out there. Smothers Brothers was cool, but it was musical comedy, and I wasn't quite sure. But Bob Newhart spoke to me because he was doing this dialogue humor where he would carry on conversations with people that weren't there. And even though if you were to play that for like a crowd from Def Jam or a crowd in a, a Caroline's or the regular comedy club mainstream, they would never laugh as hard. It was like titters. But for some reason, the cerebral comedy of what he was doing really spoke to me, and I wanted to do it. How much time went by between the time you found your dad's old records and you actually had a record player to play them on? It was probably probably about uh, seven or eight years. And what would happen during that eight time? Eight years of just staring at them without listening to them? <laughs> was it really eight years? Well, uh, That's a lot of green stamps, man. Well, you know, it was a lot of licking stamps and books. No, was we it really eight years before you were able to listen to the albums? I think I found them in the... I found them probably five to eight years early, but I really wasn't 
you got to understand, it's hard, it's hard to understand for anybody listening, but when you're four years old and a parent passes away, your other parent is like a broken person. They're lost. So part of the comedy in me was always waking up or hearing my mom cry and sneak into the kitchen where I would see her from behind. And you know how when people cry, you see their shoulders moving and always going up to her and saying everything's going to be okay. So my whole mission in life was trying to make her feel better and make her laugh more, not figuring out how I could listen to the albums. And once I probably got my act together more and was able to be a little more independent, then I could ride my bicycle to the place and, and redeem the stuff. But I was never going to burden her with getting me anything because my goal was to make sure that she was taken care of. So going back to uh, the name of Jonathan Winter's album, Comedy and Tragedy, it was in your very home. Your mom had horrible tragedy. You had horrible tragedy. And your way to alleviate your mom's tragedy was by doing your own comedy for her. Yeah. It was very difficult for me now because I have to do a serious interview with Barry Katz. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I locked myself into this uh, <laughs> this vapor lock. I'm sorry. Character. Sorry, no, Barry, to, to bring you off. down. No, yeah. there's no, this is this is inspiring, man. You know, one of this the things is inspiring. <laughs> the one of the things I say about Jay Moore uh, and anyone who listened uh, is the fact that comedians are amazing when it comes to drama because of the pain they've been through. Uh, I think Jay Moore, I don't know if he would agree with me or not, I think he could actually consider himself a better dramatic actor than he is a comedic actor. Absolutely. And so that's the thing. Man. And so Buddy Hackett, what do you remember from Buddy Hackett? You remember things that were dramatic. Don Rickles, Casino, you know, these things. that. So I think that's what you feel. You, you, you have this hole that's blown through you as a, as a young person. And anybody who has anything going or is going to do really great things, any comedian out there, artist, it's really extraordinary. I can't believe that they're extraordinary without having something really ho horrible happen to them. I, uh, that seems to be the company line about comedians is that there's that big hole inside them that can only be filled by making strangers laugh. Uh, I think Jay might be the outlier on that one. I think he's still searching for what that hole may be. And if you do discover it, please let him know for me. I think I know what the hole is with Jay Moore, but I don't know if I'm allowed to say it on this podcast. You can always edit it out, man. We got eight interns. Some of them know the erase button. Nixon had none. <laughs> Nixon redacted 18 pages. He had one intern. You have 11. Well, um, what was the thing that Jay Moore was going through early on in his life that he witnessed in his own home? Oh, alcoholism and, uh, yeah. Alcoholism. Child and a very, of an alcoholic and very people young in age. the neighborhood uh, making fun of the fact that your mom falls down the stairs. That's right. Through the back door. I remember when I was uh, a young kid, it's, uh, boy, this is kind of emotional. Um, you want me to clear these guys out of here? No. I have the power. They're my interns. I know they are. I just realized how Jay Moore felt um, early on because when I was a young kid, there was this girl in my neighborhood. It's the first time, you know, if you, if you're, it doesn't matter if you're a heterosexual, male, woman, gay, straight, uh, Maybe you're a post-op. Asexual. Um, what it means is the fact that when you're a young kid, you feel something for somebody for the first time at a young age. There's always that first person you feel something in your heart for, 
who's your age. <clears throat> and there was this girl, <clears throat> sorry, there was this girl named Sarah in my neighborhood that I really felt that I was just play with her and hang out with her. And I really felt something special. I knew it wasn't just the usual thing, but I was like eight. And I'd go over there sometimes and she'd be crying and I'd ask what was wrong and she never would tell me. And then one day I was walking over to her house after school and at the top of my, you could see at the top of my uh, uh, street is where the uh, elementary school was. And I saw her mom's Volkswagen Beetle. It was a yellow Beetle just swerving down the street back and forth like a, like a slalom skier goes back and forth and it's swerving. And the car comes into her driveway and she drives up on the yard and stops short. And there's a kid, a little kid there too, she almost hit. She opens the door, there's a bicycle on the yard. She grabs the bicycle to pick it up. She reaches for it, the momentum pulls her, she does a flip over the bicycle. And the little kid's laughing, but I'm not laughing because I know there's something wrong, but I don't know what's making this woman this way. And then I follow her in and hear her slurring her words and, and, you know, stumbling into her house. And then I see the look on Sarah's face from afar and she starts crying. And then I know that there's something wrong. And I went back and asked my mom, what does that mean when somebody's falling down? Like, what is that about? And as parents do, they whisper when they talk to you in your own house, even though you're there alone with them. And they say, Barry. She's drinking alcohol. And that's when I knew that was something that I never wanted to do and never wanted to be powerless over. So now I know the hole that was blown through Jay Moore and I understand it because I saw it and I witnessed it, but from afar. Do you think the death of our father was the hole that got blown through uh, you and I, Barry and Barry? When you lose a parent at four, how much does it lay the groundwork for uh, grief for the rest of your life or is that an age where you're able to turn the page and put it behind you because it happens in your cognitive years when you're just f starting to have cognitive thought are you able to close it behind you and close the book for uh, self-preservation or is it more damaging to lose a parent at the age of four this is what's weird about me and why well, I keep looking around the room you and I are talking to ourselves sorry I just wanted to acknowledge the people here who came here and are making all that money for me and uh, guys like Jay Moore, um, I think that Ray Don Chong and Ray Don Chong, uh, no, I've always felt about myself and I don't want this to come across the wrong way because I just want to come across humble, but it's hard to. I've always felt like I was an old soul, like there was something that was more evolved about me in my emotional maturity. My intellectual maturity, I'm like functionally special needs, but but my emotional toolbox is I have a lot of tools in there. And so does so do guys like Jay Moore. And so when my dad died, I don't believe it really, really crushed me as much as watching my sister self-destruct. And watching my mom self-destruct. That's where the grief was, is watching think, others. I think that's where I really, it, it affected me. But I was able to handle that. And it's the same with every tragedy that I've ever been through in my life, is that I do believe it affected me, but it affected me more looking and watching others. And so when 
things happen to me rather than stay there in that area and be around the people that were hurting so much, I went to another city. Did you ever grieve the loss of our father? Um, you know, when you're four and things happen, you don't really know what would have been. Like my kids at nine and 10 now, and they remember everything from when they're four. I don't remember that much about it. I remember the things I remember is my dad being taken out of the house in a stretcher and screaming and how he was in so much pain. Um, Your father was screaming. Yes. He, you know, cause he had Hodgkin's disease and there's something about Hodgkin's disease that you can, you can eat or drink certain things and it has a reaction inside of you. And like, for instance, you could have like a, you don't even know this. You can have a glass of wine for dinner and the wine, certain wine could have an effect or something inside you. And it just it feels like your whole insides are burning. And so those are the things I remember. But did I grieve? Honestly, that's an excellent question, which I've never been asked. And I, I think I, I really believe I have not grieved yet for him as much as I possibly should. I don't think that's something we should beat ourselves up over. I mean, you're four years old. So it'd be, I mean, you'd have to go back in time and be in that present moment. You'd have to do a lot of archaeological digging to fully get that emotional toolkit back open again. Maybe you know, sometimes it's best to just leave the past in the past. Maybe, you know, when some, it's, it's hard to, this is one thing, and I don't know if other people listening go through this or whatever. When I look around at the faces in this room, <clears throat> these are all, all 45 of them. <laughs> all 45 of them. You could They're, feel the baseball team. I mean, that's right. Like the, Which one of these guys plays special teams? <laughs> we could actually do improv games right now in here. Um, <clears throat> there are certain people in here who are as young as 21 years old, and certain people who are sitting here who might be 30 or something like that. We call them less successful interns. <laughs> 18, 19, 20, you're on your way, kid. 30, you may want to go back to college. <laughs> For all you 30-year-old interns out there listening, <laughs> this is industry standard. Switch careers, man. It's not working out. It's not me, it's you. It's not me. You said earlier, because I don't really care about your whole intern thing you, you were about to go into. No, it's important. All right. It's your podcast. Ranked number, th debuting at number three on iTunes, industry standard. Every email I send, it has that on the bottom to remind you how far I've fallen out of the top 40. It's true. It's, it's true. You look at it, you look at the iTunes ratings, if anybody's out there who's doing a podcast, and like <clears throat> one week you look and... Where you look one day, it's like number 21. You're like, yeah, I've made it. And then you look again like three days later and you're out of the top 200. And you're like, what happened, man? It's all over. I should just quit the business. What were you there. saying about our interns? I me? was saying when I look around. I'm Barry. I'm interviewing me. <laughs> feel good time. I wish I could do an impression of somebody. Get to the story, man. Sorry. So I look around at these faces and I feel like I'm appear of all of them i feel like completely like i am their age and time but i'm not and i'm i'm not and i realize i'm much much older than them but i don't feel that way and so i think part of the thing of tragedies and things that happen as you go through your life and things go farther and farther i think if you are uh 
evolved emotionally and you do realize those things sometimes believe it or not there's a paradox because i feel less evolved emotionally because i'd much rather hang with these people than hang with somebody my own age i just feel like it's like there you know these people in the room here they have hope and you run into most people who are most people our age don't have hope well they've settled into the life the routine they live without joy they don't wake up every morning and think what if what if we could do this they they wake up and they say why didn't i why didn't i yeah. When you surround yourself with younger people, the future's as bright. I think people like Barry Katz and Barry Katz <laughs> think that way. And I think that's what makes people perennially successful over and over again is that they never are looking in the rearview mirror and thinking about how they got jobbed and how they uh, they got screwed over by something. There's always something different on the horizon. There's always another project. There's always another client. And then every time you sync up with that person or that project, you get invigorated. You get a new spirit. You get a new fire in your ass and you can't wait to get after it. And that's what's so great and so beautiful about show business. There's always another chapter. There's always another page. Frank Sinatra was 80 years old and he was playing radio city music hall uh, i mean right. the guy was 80 he should be at home scratching himself yelling at his wife <laughs> to find the remote and a bowl of oatmeal but instead <laughs> he's playing radio city music hall for two straight weeks and you know a part of him had to be excited about that so i guess in show business that's what's great it's not like an athlete we're at 36 years old the hamstrings start to go when you're in show business when you're an actor people get nominated for oscars for the first time in their 70s martin landau martin landau for uh ed wood i mean ed wood yes one of the things you said that's kind of interesting thanks me <laughs> is the fact that like if I were to use, I sorry to keep using Jay Moore as an example, but if I were to use Jay Moore's parents as He's an example, dynamic. he went through that tragedy with his parents, visualizing that. But what's interesting is that his parents really, you know, they were the kind of people that were least active. They they moved around. His father raced cars. His mom did a lot of things. My mom just shut down so what i saw in her was like somebody who literally if she wanted to visit a neighbor she would get in her car and drive across the street to a driveway that was two doors down and she get out live of the in car. la that's very la <laughs> no long meadow massachusetts it's amazing in manhattan you'll walk 40 blocks for uh, <laughs> to pick up a bagel and cream cheese in L.A., you drive from one end of the parking lot to the other. You're like, I'm not going to Petco. It's all the way across the parking lot. Load up the truck. We're on the we're on the move, man. It's true. It's true. I mean, but you said something interesting early that uh, I did. impressed me and you. <laughs> you said uh, this is Barry Katz, industry standard. We'll probably put this up as a more stories episode as well. Uh, you said that when you were your father had passed when you were four, your uh, your habit was in life when you reach tragedies to move and to go to someplace else where the tragedy, at least the physical manifestation of the tragedy is no longer in the that uh, the actual space, the literal space. But you had tragedy and I, we talk a lot of show business on industry standard, but I don't think a lot of people know the personal side of Barry Katz myself and things that I've gone through. You actually lost a wife uh, to anorexia. Yes, and you I were did. in your 30s, early 30s, and your wife died of anorexia. It was a very long battle. 
and she died when you were in Boston, but you, you couldn't pick up and leave. I know that when Jay Moore met you, it was in Boston and it was in that actual house. And I remember me, Barry Katz, I used to always have these one-nighters all throughout Boston, Rhode Island, uh, Massachusetts, and Connecticut. And I would have the comics come up from New York, and I'd pay them $900 to do six nights of shows. And I would put them up in my house that I had in Alston, Massachusetts. So you actually, me, Barry, you had the most horrible tragedy. They say aside from the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse is uh, is the worst tragedy you could possibly go through. But instead of leaving, going against what you said earlier, escaping tragedy by putting yourself physically in a different place, literally, you actually built an empire from the ashes and you rose like a phoenix. And I think that's very inspiring. But were you aware of the conscious decision that when your wife died to build Barry Katz Entertainment from the ground up in the actual place you lived with that woman? Well, uh, this is an interesting, this is, this is one of the most interesting podcasts I've ever done where I mean, I, we could do fucking bullshit movie credits, but I mean, I think it's about time people realize how goddamn special a person I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because one thing about show business, if people aren't talking shit about you, you're doing something wrong. And I don't know anybody that takes more shit than Barry Katz. And, uh, um, I don't think people realize the things that you've overcome in your personal life and come to work the next day with a smile on your face while some comic is complaining that his toilet and his trailer doesn't flush fast enough. And you just buried your ride. And I think that's a very salient point for what we're talking about. And it ties into what you said earlier about leaving the physical space when there's tragedy. But in the case of the death of your wife, you didn't flee. You didn't run. It was fight or flight. And in that moment, you decided to fight and you fought for the better part of a decade in the actual literal location of where the death happened. Yeah, it was uh, just a, uh, uh, this is, uh, I don't want to go too long because I don't want to bore people. But so when you're. And don't want to bore people or don't want to expose you're right. You're right, Barry. I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go for it. So I was, uh, I met somebody really special. Her name was Diane and, um, I was young. I was 26. And at the time you don't really understand. I, I think it's important to share this for the audience listening out there. If you could pick a random sampling of a hundred people in your life, how many of them are experiencing true reciprocal love? The kind of love that you see in the movies at the end of the movies, the kind of love you hear in love songs. Out of a hundred? Out of a hundred random people. Like, Barry, one, how many people one, in your life? One. One. Okay. So one in a hundred Americans are having true movie reciprocal love. Yeah. So that means that. But everybody in life, the biggest thing in life is like you have to find true love. You have to find it. I mean, if you don't find it, you're a fucking failure. That's what America tells you in every movie, every well, that's magazine. That's what your own heart tells you. I don't, I don't think America tells you that. I think that's what your own makeup tells you because your parents loved you unconditionally. So you're on that, that fool's errand the rest of your life to find that unconditional love that you were raised with. Yeah, and so my mom, all through her life after my dad passed away, would talk about the love affair that she had with my dad. 
That's all she talked about. So to me, that was an important thing when you found that kind of thing. Look, for those of you listening, when you get out of the shower and look in the mirror, I mean, how many of you really love yourself? I mean, I always say, like, naked, I look like a bag of onions. Man. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like, so if some woman who is a, a beautiful, smart, charismatic woman is actually going to love me for who I am, I mean, that's like insanity to me. So it's like when you find somebody who cares about you that much and wants to spend the rest of your life with you. This is Diane. This is Diane. That's an amazing thing. And so as we were going out and in the process of about to get married, I noticed that a woman, you know, she was like about five foot eight, 130 pounds and beautiful girl. And she started losing weight and she started and and you know you know what happens as a guy this is the this is another thing that's when you're in these relationships is that you see somebody losing weight and the way america works is like they get down to 120 pounds or 118 pounds or 17 pounds or even 15 and you look at them and you're like oh my god this girl is like amazing i mean she's got like you could as i'd like to say you could circumcise a small jewish boy off of them you know, and you're like, wow, she's really I'm not sure that analogy applies to an anorexic, but go on. Man. <laughs> I think you're right. And so I was thinking as she was losing weight. Wow. She really like is taking care of herself. She really is getting ready for this wedding. Meaning she's sharp, sharp edges, circumcising a boy. Yes. All right. I put it all together, man. I confused myself. <laughs> I do that to myself a lot, too. It happens. <laughs> So I thought, my God, you know, she's really into this wedding. She's really into me, whatever. And, and then started getting down to 110 pounds, 105 pounds, and 100 pounds. And I'm like, something's wrong here. And then we were at, uh, we got married, and I realized that something was wrong, but I didn't understand what was wrong. And we were in Faneuil Hall in Boston one day, and she was walking, and she couldn't walk anymore. It was like LeBron James in the uh, in the first game. Or he the, had cramps. Or the third game. LeBron. Yes. He had cramps. Yes, cramps. He couldn't finish the game. He had to stop. That's right. And so I carried her to the car. I went to the hospital. And I'll never forget this. And again, this is the naivete of my life and who I was as a person then, even though I was 25 or 26. I take her to the hospital. I have no idea what's wrong. And the doctor comes out and he says, uh, Mr. Katz, is this your wife? Yes, it is. Uh, he said, I need to talk to you. I said, what is it? He said, um, your wife is uh, suffering from anorexia and this is a very serious matter and you have to work with me and this hospital to help take care of this. I said, what are you talking about, anorexia? I don't know what that is. And he explained what it was. And he explained what had to happen, that she would have to go to a therapist three times a week and a medical doctor three times a week and monitor everything. And But it wasn't getting any better. And, it, and, and I remember the day that she died. Um, she was leaving to go see her parents. And... All of a sudden, about a half hour later, I was in the offices where I do my stuff, and I heard her screaming, and she came in, and she was out of breath. She said, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm out of breath. And then she started having a heart attack right there in front of me. Literal, a literal heart attack. Heart attack, three, you know, 23 years old. And 23 I, years old. 
Yeah, and so I, I, ha- I had the people in the office call an ambulance. They came in, and I remember them coming in, and they just, like, you know, ripping off her clothes and giving her uh, uh, CPR. CPR and taking her out there in a stretcher, and I'm following, and I'm like, I can't believe this is ha- I could never believe that, you know, anybody could this could happen. You know, I just didn't understand the seriousness of it. And then following the ambulance, trying to go in the ambulance with him, tell him, no, you can't go. And following uh, to the hospital and calling her parents. And I remember being in that waiting room with her mom when the doctor came out and he told, he told me that I'm sorry. And I remember saying, what are you sorry about? Because I was just so naive about life at that time. And he said, Mr. Katz, uh, Mrs. Creighton, I'm, I'm sorry. I couldn't save, I couldn't save her. And I noticed her mom crying hysterically. And I, I was in shock. And I remember looking, hearing kids laughing and playing. And I remember looking to my right and there was a, soda machine and a candy machine the kids were playing around and I looked at my mom in law crying and I felt to myself the circle of life life goes on and even in that moment of horror I realized that those kids didn't know what happened those kids had no idea what just went on in my life just like I have no idea what's going on in every single person in this room's life And so to tie things in, part of the thing that drove me at that point was I knew that in the end, nobody really, most people don't care about your life or what's happening in your life. So it's family first and you got to take care of yourself, but you also got to be in the situation where you can go on because if you don't go on, you're, you're just, you're going to be like the person who left the earth. So, and I know this, and I, I say this to select people, and I said this uh, in a note to uh, Jay Moore's wife recently, is that when she lost her mom, is that if the roles were reversed to anybody who passed away, and you're up in heaven, and you look down and you see somebody crying hysterically and, and losing their way, you're going to want to reach down and shake them and say, listen celebrate me, take everything about me that was great and drive yourself forward to the next level. Do not mourn me, celebrate me. And, but most people, they see a tragedy happen when somebody dies and they just go to the negative place and they make it. As but a, I don't think they, that's a conscious choice. It's, it's just the natural act of grieving. But they use, but in your case, what I find interesting is you've had two monumental deaths, the death of a parent and the death of a spouse. And one was immediate and one took place over many years. How long before your, how, how long was it when Diane how long a process was that when you actually are literally watching somebody die in front of you? I say it was probably a year and a half, a uh, year and a, half. a year, and, year and nine months. Uh, um, and to be honest with you, Barry, <clears throat> one of the things about all of our lives that's a really tough thing to see is we watch many people die in front of us. 
I have represented many artists that I watch and I know they're dying. I know they're dying. Um, there was a guy that I represented that, <clears throat> um, named Charlie Barnett, who was the greatest street performer of all time. And Charlie was amazing. And he would do these shows in the fountain of Washington Square Park for like a thousand people around him. No microphone, nothing. He would just get everybody's attention. There'd be a crowd of a thousand people. You would think there was a riot going on, but it was just a black guy telling jokes. It was amazing. And he was a five foot three guy with just these. He's in the movie DC Cab. That's right. And he was Noogie in Miami Vice in the first season and he had this thing where he had a, 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 this disorder called or disability called club fingers where every single one of his fingers was the end of it was the size of his thumb and he was a very very dark black guy and his nails were these white half moons that were so so you'd see him on stage and he'd move around a lot and it was like mesmerized because like mum and chance <laughs> Well done, man. <laughs> I was rooting around for it. <laughs> and um, Charlie, every time you'd see him. <laughs> Mom and Sean's man. <laughs> Leave it to me to come up with a Jewish dance to tie it into a black crack addict's HIV death. <laughs> well, thanks for spoiling the story, man. Yeah, just for short on time. <laughs> okay. That's a new one for my podcast. But you knew he was dying. <laughs> well, this is what the thing is. I became a little more evolved as I went along, but I still was naive. And I, every time you'd see Charlie, he'd be wearing a different, different clothes. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, everybody wears different clothes. But you'd never see him wearing that other clothes again. It'd just be a new pair of jeans and a new shirt. And then the next day or two days later, that'd be gone. And you'd never see it again. And, and then you'd ask him, listen, can I come over uh, your house? And you, he'd never let you come over his house. And you're like, can we hang out together? And you'd never be able to hang out with him. And then you realize that this guy is homeless, living in different places. He's an, a drug user. And finally, I, I cornered him and I said, tell me something about you that, that I don't know that you don't want to tell me. And he said, you really want to know? I said, yes. Well, you know your friend that performs at the club with me? The guy who was the killer in the movie Ghost? Rick Avilas, I believe. Rick Avilas? I said, yeah. He said, well, we're both fucking drug addicts, okay? And, and what we do almost every week is we go to the subway at 42nd Street. We get on the train. He goes to one side of the train. I go to the other side of the train. We perform in the train all the way up to Harlem, all the way back to 42nd Street, and we meet in the middle. And we get off at 42nd Street. We find a place in an alley on 42nd Street, and we pull out and dump out all the change and all the dollar bills. And um, we split the dollar bills equally between us, and we fist fight for the change. And whoever draws blood first gets the change and gets the most drugs to shoot up with that day. And I had never, you know, I had never even remotely, I didn't know anybody who put needles in their arms. I'd never even known that. But I'd known around that time that if you share needles, you know, 
you were going to have a chance of getting AIDS. And when Rick Avilas died mysteriously, um, I felt that was the reason. And I watched Charlie die that same way. And I couldn't do anything about it. It was, it was helpless. And um, I tried to do a lot of things for him before he died, like get him on Showtime at the Apollo and Def Jam. I'll never forget being backstage with Charlie Burnett when I was managing him. And I remember I said to Charlie, you have to keep in mind to the listeners of the uh, Industry Standard podcast, it's, uh, this was a big comeback. It's uh, the prodigal son returning home, a man that used to shoot heroin in Harlem, and now he's back on 125th Street at the Apollo. It's uh, You could not script a more triumphant return. It makes Rudy look st- stupid and they would comparisons. Never, and they would never put Charlie... Why am I interrupting myself? <laughs> <laughs> so they I would... said to Charlie, I said, look, this is for television. This is going to be on NBC. This is your swan song. This is your big shot. You're back, baby. And I said to Charlie, you have to work clean. He said, I I got it, man. I got it. No problem. I said, you understand four million people are going to watch it. In the black community, especially, they're going to embrace you with such open arms because we all know America loves an apology. America loves a comeback. America loves to see the sick get well. And when you combine all three, you can't script something more dynamic than that. And that was Charlie in a nutshell. And I said to Charlie backstage at the Apollo, you just can't swear. Don't forget. Don't swear. You just have to work clean. You don't need to swear. You're so damn talented. He said, I got it, man. I got it. I can't wait. And I worked with Excuse me. I'm talking. (laughs) (laughs) Barry Katz is on the mic, man. And Kiki Shepard was on stage and doing what she does. And I remember the Sandman got rid of some comic. And then finally it was Charlie's turn. And I said, this is it, man. Be proud of yourself, you know. And uh, I said, just don't swear. He goes, I won't. And Charlie walked out on stage. And if my memory serves me correctly, his opening joke was, look at this nigga right here. He looks like an abortion from a butt fuck. (laughs) That was the first sentence out of his mouth. They have to keep in mind the audience went bananas and they went crazy. But all the people in NBC will never work with this human being again. It's just a self-sabotaging man. I never said the N-word before. Well, it was in context. And I think it was important for the story. I don't think people realize what I've been through. And I don't think people realize how hard I work for my clients. It's a thankless job being a manager because the more successful your clients get, the less they need you. You become ephemeral. You become like yesterday's newspaper. If you have a 19, 20-year-old comic or a 22-year-old, if you have a Whitney Cummings or a Dane Cook and you work your balls off for them, and you get Whitney the Whitney Show, and Whitney produces another show, Two Broke Girls, executive producer of Two Broke Girls. She created it. Then all of a sudden they start making $100,000 a week and they realize, well, why do I have this guy? So eventually you wind up falling on the sword for the very reason these people hired you in the first place. You become a victim of your own success. And that's what I deal with on a day-to-day basis as a talent manager. You raise people up from nothing. You believe in them. You give them hope and you give them faith and you give them strength when they don't even believe or have the strength in themselves. And then eventually they get enough money, they get enough power, they get enough success. And eventually that phone calls and your receptionist says, Barry, it's Dane. Barry, it's Dave. Barry, it's Anthony. Barry, it's Louis C.K. Barry, it's Louis. Barry, it's Bob. And the list goes on and on. 
And what I have to do in my daily life is affirm and reaffirm that I never wrong these people. It's just the nature of the job of a manager. The more successful you get, the less they need you. And that's the thing. And that's what makes the relationship such a high wire act. Because at any moment, you want to scream at these people and say, if it wasn't for me, you wouldn't even be in a position to have the financial stability to cut me loose. But instead, I choose to just stay positive. And I will say this about myself. I've never heard myself say a single negative thing about another human being. And that's true. This is me doing an impression of me. I've never in my life heard Barry Katz say a single negative thing about another man, woman, child ever in my life. And I think that speaks volumes to the person. And we could have went through all the credits on industry standard that Barry Katz has, but I think people needed to know that you're good inside and you always lead with your heart. And I think one of the reasons you are disliked because we're all disliked when we get a certain level of respect. Dane Cook is the most successful comic in the world, but guess what? He's also the most hated. As Reggie Jackson once said, fans don't boo nobodies. And he's not a nobody. He's a big, fat somebody. But the thing with Barry that I wanted to say is, I think what separates Barry from the pack and what makes people have such a visceral response to just the name itself, Barry, is that you are, and I am, one of the few managers, and maybe it's because I went through such tragedy as a child. Maybe it's because I buried a wife. Maybe it's because I watched people die around me. I don't have time for bullshit. And I will look someone in the eye and say, I don't think you're good enough. I don't think you're right for this. Should I be a little more gentle with my feelings? Maybe, but it wouldn't matter because people see things and hear things through a filter that benefit them anyway or a way they think benefits them. So I wanted to have this industry standard with me, Barry Katz, and I wanted to focus more on the man and I wanted to focus more on the heart and focus more on the kindness because I've never met anyone that has gone out of their way to help other people more ever and I think that's way more important than a list of credits on an IMDb page. So, Barry, thanks for being my guest on my podcast. Thank you, Barry. This has been extraordinary. Undeniable. It's been undeniable and a holy shit moments. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You know, there's that old expression. When you walk into a room, the other person on the other side of the wall, you have no idea what they've been through before you open your mouth and walk into that room. And I wanted to get into some of the dirt that we got into because the next time somebody wants to open their mouth and talk shit about me, Barry Katz, maybe you can listen to this podcast and realize I've been to hell and back, but I still have a positive attitude and I'm out there working my balls off to help other people. And I don't really want anything in, in, uh, as a payback. It's a great life. And as Jay Moore always says to his sons, and I have always loved this. Life isn't fair, but it's fantastic. Did I want to lose my dad when I was four? No. Did I want to watch my mom die every day because my dad wasn't there? No. Did I want to bury a wife, a bride? No. Did I want every other woman I ever met for the rest of my life know that they're playing for second place because I already put the love of my life into the ground? Of course not. Life is not fair, but it's fantastic. So you just got like lights coming through the blinds. That little ray of light where you can see the dust floating around in your room as a kid. 
you just got to get those pieces of light and collect enough of them. Put them in your pockets. Put them in your socks. Like I used to put dollar bills in your socks as a kid. Put them in a drawer. You can always go get them and share them. That's what's most important. This is Industry Standard. I'm Barry Katz. Thank you, Barry Katz. Thank you. I've, I've really, really enjoyed this. And again, I'd like to thank my first sponsor ever, Global Cash Card, for free paperless payroll, saving your company thousands of dollars at globalcashcard.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Industry Standard. I hope you thought it was as unique and special as I did. Uh, whenever I'm around Jay Moore, if it's not obvious who that person was, I know I'm around uh, somebody who's uh, really, really special and a guy who has been successful at so many different things in his life. And I'm honored that I have represented him for uh, almost 25 years now. And he's the kind of person who has always helped to make me a better manager and a better person. And I'm grateful that uh, he took the time to uh, do this uh, in this very unique format. And before I sign off... I thought it'd be only fair. And normally I ask a few different unique questions towards the end of my podcast that uh, involve holy shit moments and biggest disappointments and proudest moments and advice for young artists. But rather than have me uh, bore you guys with those uh, kind of questions and answers, I thought maybe it might be unique to have a few uh, friends of mine call in and uh, and give you their perspective on certain questions in life and in business. And I hope you enjoy that as well. So here goes the parade of a few different people. Hey, it's John DiMaggio, and you're listening to the one-year anniversary show for industry standard with mr barry katz hi barry hey man how are you it's good to see you buddy it's good to see you too man you look great man i think that girl is doing good things for you man thank you barry all right so basically i want to ask you what's your most <clears throat> embarrassing embarrassing moment my most embarrassing moment oh. i mean i've had a lot of them man but i think I think one of my most embarrassing moments was when, during my wedding, Buddy Hackett poured a drink all over the keyboard player's keyboard and the Beatles cover band that was playing my wedding. I remember that, Barry. That was messed up. It was totally messed up, man. I couldn't believe it. Kind of killed the music up to that point, really. I mean, there was, there was nothing else he could play. Buddy Hackett ruined part of my wedding, man. There was also the time you farted it in my office, and it was horrible. I don't know what you ate, but, man, it was disgusting. I'm, I'm really sorry about that. So sorry, Barry. All right, man. I love you. I love you, too.
Hey, this is Brad Williams, and I'm here with legendary comedy manager Barry Katz. Barry, congratulations on uh, your one-year anniversary of your podcast. Uh, it's a great podcast. I listen to it, and I'm happy to call you a manager. Uh, and I wanted to know if you wanted to go get some ice cream with me. Uh, Barry, would you like to go get some ice cream with me to celebrate? Well, let me tell you something, man. You say ice cream, and you got to ask yourself if you're ready to be dedicated to a certain flavor, if your flavor would please those that came before you, if you had your Mount Rushmore of ice cream, man, if you had your Ben and Jerry's, your dryers, your briars, your good humor, what flavors would they put up there? If you were in a boat and all the ice cream flavors were in the boat with you and they all fell out of the boat and you could only save one ice cream flavor, would you grab the mint chip? Would you grab the chocolate? How about the strawberry? I don't know. But one thing I gotta say is look out for Rocky Road. Rocky Road is undeniable, man. Every time you think Rocky Road is going away, it creates a problem. It shows up, and then you see Rocky Road. You didn't want Rocky Road, but now it's there, and it's putting itself out there for you, and you feel a need to have Rocky Road. Rocky Road is undeniable, man. Let's go get some Rocky Road ice cream. Barry Katz, it is the one-year anniversary of your podcast. That is very, very exciting. Uh, this is Ben Glebe. Um, I am very honored to be a client of yours. Um, thank you very much for saying that, Glebe. But let me just say the pleasure is all yours. I'm sorry? Did you mean, you mean the pleasure is all mine? Listen, let's not draw straws here or play semantics. There's a question you wanted to ask me. Yeah, 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 of course. Um, I just wanted to know if you could maybe tell me your three biggest holy shit moments from your long career. I know that's something you always love is holy shit moments. So what, what three stand out for you if you could tell it to me in order? Well, 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 Ben, let me first say that, let me just begin with this anecdote, is back when I was starting out, there was this young kid that I used to see, I used to try to give him work, and, 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 and he never, he was only, always on his own page, you know, and you wonder if guys like that are going to end up doing it, or if they're going to end up homeless in the streets, I mean, this guy would just stand in the corner doing mouse drawings all day, you know, drawing mice like a crazy person. But I looked at it and I said, that's a hell of a mouse you're drawing. And if you stick with it, maybe that man was Walt Disney. Walt Disney. Okay, that's, that's amazing. You encouraged Walt Disney at the beginning of his career. That's pretty unbelievable. Um, but again, the holy shit moments, top three. Let me just say this one other quick anecdote is... When I was starting out, and there were these two guys, they they were trying to be a comedy act, you know what I mean? And it's hard to do it with somebody else, because you got to figure out the rhythms, and you got to compromise, and that's not easy for artists. And they couldn't get people's names right either. And in Hollywood, you got to know people's names, and they just couldn't get their names straight. And one day, they were confusing everybody's names. I'm like, that's your hook right there, guys. Not knowing people's names, Abbott and Costello. That was Abbott and Costello with the famous 
who's on first bet with the names. Wow, incredible. Seems like there's almost not a career you haven't touched. Um, tell me about, just for time, your number one biggest holy shit moment that stands out. I mean, there have been so many, but if I had to choose just one, it would probably be when I was in a hot tub one day in Encino with Jay Moore, Christopher Titus, Sherry O'Terry, and Dane Cook. And all of a sudden, we saw this meteor in the sky, and all three, all four of us, or five of us, I lost track already because of the meteor was so impressive. We all looked in the air, and we were like, holy shit. That's a holy shit. And I knew that meteor was going to be a star, and I and it landed, and I'm like, land here if you want representation. I believe I could do things with your, with your, with your brilliance out there in the sky, you could really move the needle in like an intergalactic way. And that that uh that that flying saucer meteorite, believe it or not, believe it or not, ended up being Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle in meteorite form. So those are just some of my favorite moments. All right, Barry, these are my questions to you. And uh, answers as I'd assume you would answer them, me having known you as long as I have. Barry, the one question that every young comic has is what can they do to succeed in this business? I would like the opposite. I would like you to use three comics and give me examples of what they should have done differently to get further along in their career. The comics are Mitch Hedberg, Patrice O'Neill, and Burt Kreischer. Well, I, I think that's a fantastic question. Uh, that's the thing I love about you, and I'm going to save you for the last. Bear with me for one minute as I go on. I'm going to save you for the last because I think you're probably the greatest example of this. <laughs> Let's start with Mitch. Number one, I know a lot of people are going to say maybe drugs played a part in some of his undoing and that maybe I'll suggest not get into drugs. No, that's not what I saw as Mitch's common misstep. His misstep was he should have worn a suit on stage and had a headset microphone or a lavalier. It really draws an audience in when you have a lav on and a suit. It means you mean business. And Mitch, with his attire and his hair and the glasses and the nail polish, just never meant that he was <laughs> there for business. <laughs> Next is Patrice, and you know this, Bert. I told you this a number of times. Patrice should have gotten his teeth fixed. <laughs> he, he seemed unwelcoming on stage, which I think played a part in his success later on. But I'm telling you, with the teeth fixed, I see him as a Craig Robinson. And last is you, Bert. Quite honestly... <laughs> I think your drinking <laughs> is what makes you fantastic. I couldn't tell you what to do differently because, like I said, you found your voice early. 
I think the best thing you can do right now, possibly, would be hair transplants <laughs> or maybe get new teeth, wear a suit, and get a lav or a headset mic for the stage. <laughs> Is that the end of the question? My fucking impression tailed off at the end, Barry, because I got so into hearing you listening to this going, is that he's going into a different accent? That doesn't even sound like the first accent. You want to hear where I know? And this you can edit this out if you want. The suit, the love, the headset and the teeth or all things you said to me when I was a young comic. <laughs> and obviously there is a tad bit of irony in my answer for me. Irony? Is that the right one? All right. I love you, Barry. Congratulations uh, on everything you have. Your, your, your podcast is absolutely fantastic. I get tons of people telling me nonstop on the road how grateful they are that I introduced you to them or vice versa. I love you. I hope all's well. Barry, Neil Brennan, congratulations on your one-year anniversary. Only thousands of podcasters have made it this far. Barry, here's my question. When you take a job as a manager, do you assume that you're going to get fired? And I don't mean that you specifically, but I think that goes for all managers. Do you, is it like being a basketball coach where you just assume eventually it's going to, you're going to get fired by your client? All right, man. Congratulations, boss. First of all, I would like to say that's one of the 10 best questions I've ever heard in my life. And uh, I would also like to say that every client I've ever signed, I expected to stay with me and vice versa for the entirety of their career. I thought by now I would have 50 clients, Louis C.K., Dave Chappelle, Whitney Cummings, uh, but they all left me, man. And you asked me, I remember you asked me if, if every time I think I'm going to get fired and I got to tell you, man, it fucking blindsides me every time, man. They go, Barry, will you meet me for lunch? And I go, sure, I love lunch. And then I go over there and they fucking fire me, man. And uh, and yeah, it hurts. It hurts a lot, man. And uh, but I I do what every Jew does when they're in mourning. I fucking sue the pants off a man. Hope that helps. All right. That (laughs) wraps up another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Is it me? Who knows? If you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. Say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over 
till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.